Johnny Monoxide, and tonight I am joined by Gromnak. What's up? Hey, hey. And joining us for the first time, Aether. What's happening, man? Going on, guys. Not much. Uh, people may know you from your uh, your musical contributions to the show. Right? Yeah, I've been uh, quite a few break songs, probably. Yeah. You go by you go by a couple different project names. Yeah, I have a couple of different project names. Um, if you guys want to check any of that stuff out, you can just check out uh, Noiserick on uh, Telegram. There you go. You know, don't don't chill yourself too hard or anything, bro. Wow. Yeah, uh, I didn't want to. <laughs> well, you can. It's okay. It's like the, the <laughs> no, point. That's for the ending. I, you can do it whenever. I don't care. Just don't do it like right in the middle of a sentence. But um, anyway, yeah. So Aether is joining us this evening. Jack may show up. Not sure. Uh, Reinhardt, I believe, has the evening off. And Dogbot is, sir, not appearing this week. Ah, man. Long weekend for me. I finally got a couple days off work. Feels good, man. What about you guys? What's going on? Um, slow start to the season. Not yeah. bad. Not bad. Slow start I'm to not the season as much as I was last year, so that's nice. Wait a minute, slow start to what season? I usually take a second job this time of year, but oh, that's right. For now, you do like you do like uh, like bank repo maintenance type stuff. Yeah, I'm a repo man. A repo man. You ever had to repo somebody like out of their car? Like they 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 like tied themselves to the bumper or anything? No, no, no. I I I get the. I'm going to find. Um, rogue uh they're not really people rogues i feel like you're making this up i feel like you're making this up poorly as you go along well i don't want to spoil anything (laughs) no spoilers right you're not about the spoilers or anything we might spoil some things tonight though oh we spoil things all the time on the show it's kind of like one of the one of the main things people like about the show is that we do spoil things for people we spoil all kinds of stuff. We let me see. What did we spoil this year? We started with Ted Kaczynski. We spoiled that one. Um, what else? What else was faking gay? Timothy McVeigh. Uh, that nigga's still alive. Uh, what else? We've we've ruined a lot of things, but not necessarily this season. I think. I think we've done a lot of a lot more of that in the past. I mean, what else is there that we can ruin? We've already ruined television, Hollywood, music. Uh, Everybody's everybody's Hollywood crush has been ruined, right? That's true. That's true. That's right. Thankfully, I never had one. We're not going to ruin anything tonight, though. I mean, a little bit, maybe. Maybe a little bit. I guess it depends on your definition of ruin. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what your what your you know your opinion of of the topic was in the beginning. Like, there are some people who are going to be like, "Who?" I'm sorry, what? Uh, so I'm certainly not dissuaded from reading his work. Oh no! I mean, there's not much, <laughs> bro. If you if you've seen the shelves of stuff that that I have that's non, uh, like paranormies related or history related or whatever, like my my um, 
crazy author's shelf. I've got everybody from Bukowski to Hunter S. Thompson and Philip K. Dick. Uh, who else is up there? I got almost all the beatnik guys. I've got, um, that's on the other side of the room. I can't see him. Yeah, but, Abby Hoffman. Oh, I don't have Abby Hoffman. I don't, but I you do have stole that book. What's that? You never stole that book. <laughs> is that the book? Steal this book. Yeah. Yeah. No, I never stole that book. Surprisingly, they sell it. Weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how many copies it's sold. Gay. Right. I bet it's in the band book section, dude. Oh, absolutely it is. But I mean, like, like right next to Hunter S. Thompson, I've got like Douglas Adams. So, and right next to Douglas Adams is Philip K. Dick, who we will end up eventually talking about tonight. I have a, I have a really weird book collection. You guys have seen pictures of my shelves. I have a whole shelf of poker books <laughs> for when I used to play poker. Never got into it. Oh my God, dude. The early aughts poker rush, man. Chris Moneymaker and the, just the normal dude who just happened to have 10 grand extra that he could play the game with, right? Just nobody. Never played in a big tournament in his life. Bought in and Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker and... Next thing you know, poker was a fucking Olympic sport. And there was 800. Yeah, it did get real popular for a while, though. It did. Yeah. World Series of Poker, the World Poker Tour television shows. They had the some cash poker game where they would have like television stars come on and play with um, play with a lot of the poker pros. Dude, I legit had a friend who his parents allowed him to drop out of school so he could play poker professionally on PokerStars.com. On poker stars, wow! Mm-hmm. And was he in on it because time, because like literally hundred dollars uh, every three hours or so? Like, yeah. So he he was literally that "Are you winning yet, son?" meme. Yeah, but he was winning. Yeah, <laughs> that's weird. So he uh, it, but yeah. Well, you know those poker sites were extremely ex- ex- extremely rigged. Like, yeah, yeah, they've been like exposed as like pretty hardcore like ranks on oh yeah like the guys okay so the guy that set up sam bank scam bankman fraud you know you remember yeah, him wasn't or, he involved with one well he was involved with the company that was involved with the scams so the guy who helped set up ftx was involved with the i want to say not poker stars but uh what was the other big one um oh yeah the football one <clears throat> mm. or was it a sports one no it wasn't sport that was bodog um, Bodog okay. was another one. No, it was a it was a poker. But everybody had like the uh, you had cartoon avatars of the people, and then a lot of the big name poker pros would play, and you could play against them on a regular basis. Um, or were you? I'm sorry. Oh, I said, or were you? Right, and that's the thing is like, were you or were you? You know, or was it just literally like eight other guys colluding against you? And they had they've been exposed yeah. as having like software to where they could see everybody's cards and like they knew what was mm. coming in the shuffle and blah blah blah. You know, so to have won an online poker on a regular basis is a feat in and of itself, due to the extreme amount of cheating that was going on. I had a buddy. Um, when I was getting out of the Navy, he went to Vegas. Uh, he bought into three bracelet tournaments, placed in all three. One, uh, the third one he played in, it was a $2,500 buy-in. He won like $230,000 at that one. But uh, he placed, he final tabled the other two and um, walked out of there after paying taxes with like just about $400,000. Uh, 
Holy shit. Yep. He uh, got out of the Navy. He was on his way out anyways. He got out, bought a house, married a stripper. They have three kids. He plays he plays poker on the strip, taking uh, tourist money. Now, he's like... He did like the he did like the Vegas dream, like married married a stripper, turned her into a housewife. They have kids. Good for him. It's he's like, doing yeah. I mean, he's doing dream of doing that. He's doing better than ninety percent of the people I talk to online. That would yeah, <laughs> that would call him a degenerate piece of shit, right? People that would people that would flay him for his degeneracy. He's doing better than amazing. Anyway, you make, you make your own way, right? You do, man. You do. Mm-hmm. Speaking of speaking of making your own way, uh, we're is <laughs> a terrible segue. We're making new merchandise, folks. Uh, I thought you were about to talk about Fleetwood Mac there for a sec. Go your own way. Make, yeah. <laughs> Go your own way. No, I'm not doing that. Uh, where is the <laughs> yeah? Right. Stop it. Uh, where's Skull's DM? There it is. There's a guy who is a friend of ours who is working on making merch. And there it is. Let me join. Uh, we're going to be right as of right now. All we're doing to start is the Paranormies Bigfoot trucker hat. What do you guys think about that? Let's board it. Have you seen Have you seen this yet, Anthony? Without even looking at it, I love trucker hats. Yeah, it's in the. Uh, yeah, I'm buying it without even looking at it myself. I do want to see it. I'm trying to find it. It's in the. It's in one of our. Do we have, do we have so many different chats? But uh, it's going to be the the logo that we just used for the Tennessee episode the other day. Um, and with the big, the black and white with the Bigfoot. Here, I'm going to forward this to... I think I know it, Logan. I'm going to forward this to the admin chat so you can take a look at that. There it is. All right, it's in the bottom of the admin chat. Take a look at that. So, yeah, we're right now we're going to start with the hat. We're working back into shirts. Um, so, if you have designs that you would like to see on Paranormies merchandise and you think would look cool or you think you have an artistic flair that you might, you know, think you'd want to see on one of our shirts send it in send it to us at paranormiespresent at gmail.com yes we still have gmail no we are not funded by the cia we're not funded by anybody we're actually funded by the people who listen uh people who donate we uh, i need to check on the pilled donations but that is where most people do the donating is on the pilled live stream Uh, i'd like to thank all of you guys for that um we really appreciate it. But once we get our merch set back up, we can continue grifting. I mean, selling, you know, merch there. I'm just kidding. Nobody's grifting. Nobody makes a ton of money selling hats and T-shirts. If you think that people are paying mortgages and gated communities with, with uh, hats and T-shirts, then, boy, whoo, you got a hell of a hat and T-shirt business. Anyway, uh, when we get the website address and everything 100% all together, I will put that up on the telegrams and on the Twitter and the gab and all of the things. So all of you people who listen to our show, all of you wonderful listeners, can go get yourself one of our hats. Do it. Yeah. It's a threat. We got some neat stuff coming up. Yeah, definitely. So, all right, that's the part of the show where Johnny shills. And I do that like what? Like once every fucking seven shows when I think about it? Yeah. <laughs> 
Maybe you can get some stickers for your locker. Oh yeah, stickers too. This guy's this guy makes dope stickers. Also, uh, the guy that made our keychains, Grognak, your the keychain, right? That guy. He's gonna be. He's making more stickers for us too. So we'll have stickers and shirts and hats and stuff again. And this time, this time, hopefully, uh, they won't get. You know, um, we'll just say that it'll it'll be a better business model than the last one. Let's just leave it at that. I, I received mine. You, you, you received your what? What did you receive? Uh, two shirts. Which ones were they? Uh, the one Dogbot drew and the tinfoil one. Okay, I the- did. It, I did it real early, real early on, as soon as like possible. And then I hear all these people like not getting them and shit. I'm like, oh fuck, oh fuck. And then like I get it. Yeah. I'm like, well, now I feel like kind of lucky. But you got time. Like, no, you know what? And everyone else. You know what happened is the the last. It was the last series. It was all the the um the skull and the new logo and the extended skull logo and stuff. Uh, and the, I hate the antichrist one, like 99% Uh, of the people that ordered them did not get them. And I'm hoping that everybody got their money back. But like I said, new distributor, new business model. That's all I gotta say. We'll get that forward. Yes. Moving forward. Um, what else? You know, I was told we missed a bunch of stuff. With Tennessee, uh, but that is yeah, yeah. Well, that's not an unusual thing for us to do because we do only have two hours, um, and most of it's these also states the most fucked up state in America, Tennessee. Almost. Yeah, like almost. It's How's in like the top five, probably. Whoa, 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 whoa. How so? There's all kinds of crazy stuff out there. Yeah, I mean, you've got like, I mean, you you got like the home of the nuclear bomb, the atomic bomb, and you've got Bigfoot, and you've got the the beast between the land and the lakes, and all that. You you didn't even mention that like Johnny lives there, right? But I'm not a crypto. <laughs> Ain't you? No, I'm just a paranormal. I'm just the you the void conf test yet. I'm just the chief schizo in charge of the paranormies, right? Yeah. We're gonna have to have you sit down and just you know this is gonna go over your retina. And uh, right, just kidding. That's hour two. This is the edge, and I'm the HNIC out here in in Tennessee. No, um, foster friendly over here. But we also but we like we do the Benelli reflex. We <laughs> Benelli makes a nice shotgun. That's what I've heard anyway. Um, but like with most states, we miss a lot of stuff because there's so much content to cover with all of these states. We can't possibly cram it all in in two hours. So America's weird. America is a very weird place. I said that about Ohio. I was like, you know, like Ohio is so weird because the whole state is built on an Indian burial ground. Like literally the whole state. It's not like, you know, it's not like, oh, this neighborhood, like in Poltergeist. Nah, it's the whole, the whole freaking state of Ohio. I can't not think of Gummo when I think of Ohio. Oh, God. Gummo. There's a movie that I hope I never have to watch again. It's disturbing. Place in Ohio. What's that? Yeah, I know. Exist. I know. It's just disturbing, though. It's very disturbing. Yeah. It's one of those. Like I said, I don't want to see it again. There's a few movies that are like that. Yeah, I, saw, I was just going to say that. Speaking of a disturbing movie. Yes. So we have gotten into uh, reading science fiction for uh, for fun, again, because, you know, because reading is fun. I don't know if you guys know that or not. I, mean, I know you guys that are on the show know that, but listening to the show, reading is actually fun. Uh, it's something you can do 
that takes you away from your screens. I know people like to read on their screens. I'm kind of a paper book reader myself. I like actually having physical copies. But um, this guy is probably one of, if not the most, is he? you think he's the most prolific science fiction writer or top five at least, right? With most works? I'd say definitely top five, but possibly most. Yeah, I don't know who's written Specifically science fiction. Specifically science, sci-fi, yeah. Uh, Philip K. Dick. Philip Kindred Dick. Kindred. Right. Strange middle name, Kindred. It's pretty apt to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of normal, like it seems like a normal American background, right? You know, he just grew up moving around a little bit. I didn't know he who he was until I saw a bunch of the movies based on his books. I'll be honest. Really? Well, you yeah, weren't born yeah. in '45. Well, no, exactly. I was, you know, I was born in the '80s, so I grew up reading fucking R.L. Stein books and the the Hardy Boys. Yeah, stuff. you grew up. Re- yeah, you grew up reading Goosebumps, Goosebumps, yeah, yeah. and and the Hardy Boys. I grew up reading the Hardy Boys, though. The Hardy Boys. But I, but um, I saw all these movies, man. Yes. Um, Kindred though, why, why kindred? I wonder. If that's just odd. Hmm. But like, why would his parents name him Kindred? Philip Kindred is that like a a family thing? I don't know. It's weird. His twin sister, twin sister died prematurely. Uh, she oh, they they were born six weeks premature, and she died. Um, she died what six weeks after, right? Her birth. So she was born. So they were born six weeks early, and she was died about the time she was supposed to be born. Yeah, he was. So he was born in in uh, nineteen twenty eight. That's how long ago, you know. So he went. Through, his family went through the depression and everything. Yeah, they were they like brand new to the depression. Like right as the depression was starting up, um, they moved to the San Francisco Bay Area when he was little. And then they moved to Reno. Um, so, oh my god! Oh, it's his this, mother's maiden name. It's his mother's maiden name, Kindred. Mm-hmm. That's why it's his middle name. Dorothy Kindred became Dorothy Dick. Oof. Marcy Darcy. No, anyway. Um, <laughs> it's just it's weird the way people get their names together. So he went. Okay, so um. He moved around a lot. So they, his parents got divorced. Mom got custody. Somehow she took a job to D in DC from Reno. And then he went back to Berkeley high somehow. It's a very, like for being lower middle-class people, that's like, a, that's a lot of moving and especially that time. Just seems odd. A little bit. So, uh, oh, he was a member of the class of 1947 with Ursula K. Leguin. K- Ursula Leguin. So uh, she wrote speculative fiction, including the Earthsea fantasy series. She graduated with, with PKD from Berkeley High in uh, 47. But they apparently didn't know each other. Strange. Yeah, he went to college in Berkeley, too. Mm-hmm. But from what I understand, he pretty much was there not long and mainly used his library card to get access to their library and read a lot of philosophy and speculative 
like uh, stuff like that. Yeah. As oh. opposed to like sci-fi. Well, that's new. I did not. I did not know that Berkeley at one point had a mandatory ROTC program. ROTC. Um, that's odd that colleges used to have mandatory ROTCs. Huh. Especially UC Berkeley. That's an odd. Yeah, you know what's what's funny is from it seems like from a, even an early age what his interest was was philosophy. And when people bring him up, he's brought up as like the, one of the godfathers of sci-fi, right? But like, oh, absolutely! Every everything he writes about the like Mars might just be like mentioned in the background, or like they, he might have flying cars in his, in his novels. But um, his books are philosophically based; they're 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 anything but like an actual you know hmm. science fiction book in most ways you know it's that's uh, real quick i want to go back to that berkeley thing uh the, 1964 right before all the civil rights stuff there was a huge fight against compulsory rotc at uc berkeley apparently it goes back to 1870 the origins of the army rotc program can be traced to the early 19th century in 1819 through the efforts of captain Alden partridge to uh, uc berkeley yeah crazy UC Berkeley, the most liberal of libtard right. colleges. That's interesting. Had Yeah. And of course, mandatory. I mean, like, yeah, the Golden Bears have produced many, 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 many officers in the United States Army. Crazy. Mm-hmm. And of course, <clears throat> and of course, you, you know, UC Berkeley has m- many ties to the CIA and that kind of intelligence, too. Grooming. Yeah. Oh, it's totally a grooming school. So PKD went to UC Berkeley for a year. Um, Never declared a major, and he only took – dude took classes in history, psychology, philosophy, and zoology. Hmm. So – and through his studies in philosophy at UC Berkeley, he came upon his uh, belief that uh, what was it? existence is based on internal human perception, which doesn't necessarily correspond to external reality. So your reality is what you make of it in your mind, basically. Yeah, and he was definitely associating with a lot of those uh, people out of that little, like, I guess, intellectual movement, if if you will, uh, out of that UC Berkeley area Mm -hmm. in general around that time. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that. That was pre, dude. This is pre hippie days. So this is back right. when UC Berkeley was was conservative, you know. Yeah. So this is like breaking new ground for for the time. I'm sure. Um, what do you say? He said that he he described himself as an acosmic panentheist, which he explained as meaning that I don't believe the universe exists. I believe the only thing that exists is God, and he is more than the universe. The universe is an extension of God into space and time. That's the premise that I start from in my work. That so-called reality is a mass delusion that we've all been required to believe for reasons totally obscure. Hmm. Yeah, he's crazy. Is he, though? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Basically, like, what he's so saying, is, the world's if, if not he, entirely... If any of our listeners don't know... Well, yeah, yeah, he's known as the crazy author. Well, yeah, absolutely. Philip K. Dick is known as the crazy author. Like well, I, I mean, but yeah, basically, I mean, all he's saying, the world is all his career on the line for saying things like this, right? 
he he did it at that one speech in France, and people laughed at him. But he like, and here we are talking about it later on, you know. Um, but what he basically all he said is the world's not entirely real, and there's no way to prove it. Yeah, he kind of thought he could. Right, but I'm saying that's that was the, the in the beginning. Yeah, in a certain sense, the world is not completely real, and there's no yeah, way yeah, to confirm theory, whether yeah. or not truly it is. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, he he was a simulation theorist well before simulation theory ever existed. Well before Bouldryard. He um. So this is kind of an as an aside, but related to the simulation. Uh, the his book, The Simulacra. Uh, he said Balzac was actually a huge influence for that. Well, there you go. So, like, like, so that's like he, that's like he pulls, like, his information not from like sci-fi authors. He said he was actually really influenced by like French realist novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, was like a huge inspiration uh, of a lot of his work. I mean, he said he would read sci-fi, but unlike, because uh, because the French. Yeah, but what was what course. sci-fi was there for him to read back in the fifties? Um, you know what I mean. He was he was one was. of the. He, yeah, H.G. Wells. He also he cited some that I, a lot of people probably have heard of, but I haven't. And I know he said he was reading some, and it did exist, but like it was very in the box, right? Like, right, right. Very he, tailored he, to a specific audience mm. for a specific reaction, et cetera. I'm pretty sure his biggest influence was was H.G. Wells. I might, I don't want to misquote the dead guy. I mean, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I, I picked that up. Um, which segue segues into him as a as a pretty cool author, maybe in the future. But um, he he seems to pick up this idea, anyways, that um, things in his book that are considered science fiction, they really weren't; that they were just out of our reach at the time. Or you they know? are going on, like, or they are happening, or right or now. they are, and you don't know about it mm-hmm. exactly. Right? There's a lot of that. Oh yeah. A lot of stuff just happening just outside of where you can see it. Well, we all know um, it seems to be that when things are, are claimed as invented, they're really just rediscovered. Mm-hmm. We talk about that a lot when we talk about Antiquitech and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and any any sort of invention, you know, especially ones that are attributed to like the big famous names. You can pretty much guarantee that that's just a bullshit cover story. Like in his, in we're we're gonna cover just a couple of his specific novels today uh, or tonight, whenever you listen to this. But um, in a lot of his different short stories and everything, he has different descriptions of technology that we have today, like Alexa, basically, like all these Bluetooth devices. Yeah, um, you know things we have now. That people in the seventies, when they read these books, they probably they probably thought like, "Wow, that's that's mind blowing, far out, man." <laughs> and we we have it, we have it. That's far out, man. Yeah, I know all the stuff. Is he based a lot of his books like on like ninety two and like two thousand twenty and like? Right, know, it wasn't exactly a a, a, a distant. It's a not too distant future, you know. He's pretty close a lot of the time. A lot of times, yeah, it's strange. He's another one of those guys that was writing about dystopian futures that weren't all that distant and he pretty much hit it on the nose i mean you know back oh, in the James day Joyce. 
I'm sorry. James Joyce. I'm sorry. James Joyce was another one of the huge influences. He said, "Oh, for sure, yeah." But I mean, if you go back and you look at um, Aldous Huxley and George Orwell, I mean, they were both on the nose. Who who knew that they'd both be hitting the nose together? Right? Because they used to say they used to have the debate, uh, the Harvard debate clubs, where they would debate uh, which dystopian future would come to pass. Would it be Huxley's? Or would it be Orwell's? And those niggas didn't realize it was going to be both. Yeah. <laughs> Why not both? Right. One intellectual circle jerk. Oh, absolutely. Is there any? Is there any other kind? <laughs> oh. I mean, come on. Real circle jerks never existed. That was just I mean, bullshit. That nobody on, ever. On the, every kid has heard about. Every kid heard about that thing. Nobody's ever done slapping, it. Slapping nobody, each other. So nobody's ever done it. Stop it. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I don't care what you heard about that one year at camp. Nobody's ever done that. It's some bullshit. So, um, what was I going to say? So he, I mean, this guy talked about simulation theory basically before people even had personal computers in their houses. Yeah. Francis Bacon did too. What simulation theory? Was was he real? But right. But but (laughs) but like Bill K. Dick definitely was more on the nose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Oh, right. I mean, he's well, again, is Philip K. Dick another Sir Francis Bacon? He's got how many how many published works? Right. Dude, I I looked it up. Really. It's like some crazy number, like 140 novels and like or, or like what is it, 80 novels, like 140 short stories or something like that. Hold on a second. I got to look this up for a complete just for a complete bibliography. I'm clicking on that. The complete bibliography. Um, if there's more, I would not be surprised. It doesn't. Oh, it just gives me a long ass list. Okay, he has forty four novels and one twenty one short stories and fourteen short story collections. Yes. Okay. So forty four novels, one hundred and twenty one short stories. That's ridiculous. From um, from, from nineteen sixty to nineteen sixty six, he was putting out five novels a year. So yeah. This is. Machine. Five novels, uh, novels, and these aren't like, and they're not like Robert Suffer books either, where they're like thick pamphlets. These are actually a couple hundred pages. Like they're they're not just long short stories. They're literal. They're le- legit novels, right? He wrote a lot of novellas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he wasn't writing like, you know, he wasn't writing the Lord of the Rings every time he wrote a book, right? But right. he he did some creepy bosses, right? But yeah. five novels in one year. Like, dude, just the year 1953 alone. Hold on. One. Let me just read these off. The the Builder, Colony, The Commuter, The Cookie Lady, The Cosmic Poachers, The Defenders, Expendable, The Eyes Have It, The Great Sea, Hanging really Stranger, Impossible Planet, Imposter, The in, in, Indefatigable. Indefag- indefagitable. That's a that's a weird word. Indefagitable frog. The infantines. The king of the elves. Martians come in clouds. Mister spaceship. Out of the garden. Paycheck. Piper in the woods. Planet for transients. The preserving machine. Wait, Project Earth. Did you say the infagitable for- frog? The indefagitable. <laughs> I was like Alex Jones reference. Like, oh no, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> No, no, no. Anyways, he wrote, okay, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 33, because of course, 33 short stories in the year 1953. Holy shit. 
1954, he put out what appears to be like approximately. Said, they're not very short. Huh? Like you said, they're not, they're not even short. short. Yeah. No, yeah. and these aren't all that short. Like some of these are novellas. Like, okay, so, one of the, okay, The Great Sea was adapted into the novel Deuce Array, which is a post apocalyptic science fiction novel started by Philip K. Dick and finished by Roger Zelazny. Ooh. Oh, God. Zelazny. Um, that happened a few times with Philip K. Dick's work is he would start something and not finish it and somebody else would take it and finish it. That happened a couple yeah, times. Well, a lot of his stuff that didn't get picked up um, once he died, people mm-hmm. just wanted to rip through everything. He had. Oh, yeah. And that was the thing. Is he, he, so they finished a lot of his works. He's another one of those guys that wasn't super popular while he was alive. Like he was they were just making Blade Runner when he died. Right. He was, he was, he hadn't really gotten any money from the Blade Runner. I actually heard that they offered him money to rewrite his book to be more like the movie, and he declined it. To rewrite the book (laughs) to be more like the movie. I didn't hear that. That, as a, as a writer, that would hurt my feelings. Like I, I would. He didn't. I, yeah, he didn't do it. Obviously. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I would hang up on that person and never take their call again. But I think I think uh, he did see like because he got access to like super early screenings of it because it it came out like after he died. I think right. Yes. Um, well, he but, died yeah. and then it came out like the next week. Like it was like mm. it was pretty pretty close. Yeah, he he did get the advanced screenings. He actually saw it. Yeah, I heard he like didn't hate it, but he like he well, didn't hate it, but it was like oh, okay. Yeah, I mean. It's not. It's it's not his book. The movie is not his book. I heard he also didn't like that book, according to him. I heard like this, he, this interview I was listening to earlier. He was talking about it. He said that was like one of his books. If if he could take a, some of his books and like hide them under the floorboards, that would be one of them. I'm like, why? Do you do you guys <laughs> want which, which that was start with? that was uh, do androids dream of electric sheep? Do you guys want to talk about that one first, or do you want to talk about Scanner Darkly? Uh, it's up to you guys. I don't care. Um, I have never read Androids. Um, I saw a scanner darkly. I've seen I've seen Blade Runner a few times, um, and I've seen a scanner darkly, and I've listened to a scanner darkly. I well, have so not start with that. Read? Yeah, I'd or- say we should start with that then, uh, because okay, well. I mean, not that the movie is necessarily bad. I definitely gave it a really harsh treatment in the chat the other night when I turned it on. But I, I, to be fair, I read the book that day. With the movie The um, Android? Yeah, yeah, Blade Runner. Okay. And uh, it's definitely a lot different. Um, than the well, that happens to... In some it, huge ways. That happens to his stuff almost every time, right? Yeah. They take... First First of all, they Scanner take... Scanner Darkly was pretty good. Right. Yeah. Scanner Darkly is one, is the one, I think, that holds up where it is the name of the book because they didn't, they didn't do the thing where he takes like his, you know, do androids dream of electric sheep and that became Blade Runner, right? Where we're, we're not only going to take your, your story from your movie and we're not going to use it completely and we're also going to change the name of it. I can see why he wouldn't have liked it. Like personally, yeah. it's like, oh, we really yeah. like this thing that you did, but we're going to change the name and change it enough to where we like what you started. Cool. The, Thank the you for doing all the legwork for us, but we're going to make it our way. The name of that movie still kind of has like a meaning to it. And well, we, can, we can get to that later. Do androids dream of electric sheep? No, Blade Runner. Oh. 
Oh yeah, no, definitely. It's it's like its own thing, and I mean, uh, Ridley Scott just directed it. I forget who wrote it, but um, and Ridley Scott is the man, also. Oh, I love Ridley Scott. Shout out here. Yeah, Ridley Scott, the Alien movies. Like so, Scanner Darkly, dude. It's it's like it's like Borderlands, the movie, right? Mm-hmm. If, if we've ever had anyone here that's played Borderlands, like the video game, it's like this. It's um, I forget what they call the animation, but it's basically they film the movie okay. and then and then they do the um the artistic representation like the cartooning over the like they trace it over the filmed movie yeah they did so that if it, uh this is, it has keanu reeves in it, it has woody harrelson um uh what's the name robert downey jr so winona Ryder, robert cool downey jr saw, keanu reeves winona yeah Ryder. yeah i saw the movie way before i read the book obviously sure because um, it's it's kind of an obscure book but um, I definitely encourage any of our listeners to check out both the books and the movies for either of these different two movies and novellas, no- novels we're talking about tonight. Because they're real. They're, I th- I think these two are his best books that I've gone through so far. Um, and we'll get to some other ones maybe at, at some other point. But I think A Scanner Darkly has a lot of importance when it comes to interpreting like nowadays. I forget what year it's based on but it's it's san francisco right mm-hmm. like, it's yeah it, it's san francisco i want to say they both are actually thinking about it oh yeah he almost pre- so he almost predicts fentanyl right? mm-hmm. am i wrong basically pretty he much, pretty well, much yeah it's yeah he predicts the heroin slash fentanyl phenomenon where you're like you have to keep doing it because you're addicted to it but you know you're gonna die and that's he why they call it, it to like its logical conclusion it's yeah yeah Substance, so, like, yeah. They, our listeners probably know that we we obviously have a problem with um, opiates in America and the pharmaceutical companies that are run by um, what is the Sacklers, right? The Jews, just call them the Jews. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with the Sackler family and the things mm-hmm. that they've done with uh, opiates in this country. And so he almost called this, you know. 20 years or something before it even happened. This happened. Right? Yeah. He wrote this. Uh, he wrote this in 77. Okay. So it's coming out of, it's coming out of the sixties. Mm-hmm. It's well, 77. So like the late seventies. So science so fiction the, is already, he has the, um, Philip Kiddick has the experience, his experience of the sixties when he's writing this. Novel, mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the thing is, is is the movie? Well, the movie's pretty close to the book. It's really not. It's when you minimize a book to two hours or whatever mm-hmm. it is, it's not mm-hmm. bad at all. It's actually not bad at it's all. It's really yeah. not. Yeah, yeah. I was I impressed. Hate, I want to watch the I movie. Hate the movie, read the book, guy. I'm sorry. You're a, you're a hate the movie, read the book, guy. Yeah, and I still liked it. Yeah, I'm gonna watch it again because it's been a while since I watched it. Um, I definitely, I definitely want to watch it again. Uh, so like. We're going to so, spoil things, right? Yeah, we're going to spoil right, things. It cool. starts off. So the United States has lost the war on drugs, right? This drugs are drugs are everywhere. Uh, substance D is the drug of choice now. It's a, it's a hallucinatory uh, opiate type drug. So about tw- almost a quarter of the population of the United States is addicted to this stuff. In this book, that's pretty fucking bad. 
What's a quarter of 300 million? <laughs> right. It's a lot of, yeah, people. it's a lot of people. It, it, it's enough. So that like the police force, the narcotics agents in the San Francisco PD, they need to wear, uh, basically it's like a camouflage bodysuit. Like imagine green man from like, uh, sunny Philadelphia. Right. But it like, it, it like does the camouflage like thing over you with different like faces and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you're wearing this, um, this set of like pajamas, the people in the PD don't know who you are, which is important because they try to stress the fact that manufacturers of substance D are infiltrating the police communities. Like, so they're, they're allowing this to be pushed, even though the, the citizens and the law enforcement in some ways are trying to fight it. So the, the main character, um, right. I know I never really understood. I never really understood what the real point of the scramble suit was. Cause like, it just protects their identity, right? Yeah. But like, if if you're talking to somebody that's wearing a scramble suit, wouldn't you know they're wearing a scramble suit? Like, they kind of get to that by the end of the book. So that uh, Arctur's who he is as a person when he re- he's reporting to mm-hmm. his his superior, he figures him out through a process of elimination. So of course it's it's not. Um, it's not a perfect system. Right. The but what I'm saying is, is like, it's, it's if some you're kind of way to keep you from getting doxxed kind of, right. Sure. Yeah. But if you're out there, and was pre- he really trying to find Bob doctor, but if you're pretending to be, all right, so he's an undercover agent, right. And he's out there trying to buy drugs, right. To as an agent, just so he can catch the dealer. Like, wouldn't, people noticed that he was wearing like this camouflage suit or did they, does he, he only wears it in the agency. So like the people who he's working under don't know his direct identity. And the, the reason they have to do that uh-huh. in, in this setting is because like I said, the manufacturers of the, of the, Okay. So because the manufacturer, that's right. Okay. So because yeah. the manufacturers have infiltrated the police, the police that are doing the investigating have to wear the scramble suits so that the infiltrators don't know who they are. Wow. Yeah. Crazy, huh? Yeah. So this Probably is like really some, like that, except we just don't have scramble suits. <laughs> right. A lot of the force <laughs> is also junkies. Right. And that's the other thing is, yeah, a lot half the police force are junkies and there are, which is another reason for the scramble suit too. Mm-hmm. They they know they have to hire junkies, so they don't really want to know they're doing it. Right. So it's like a whole bunch of there's a, just like a. It's a very strange dichotomy of having this suit really? that is to protect the cops from cops and also from the drugs. And I think they honestly did a pretty good job of it in the movie too, because like in the book, it's described as like almost unseeable. But like to do that to to sl- they kind of slowed it down in the movie. But I kind of like that because you can like really get a feel of what's actually happening. With mm-hmm. that suit, like what it's doing. Mm-hmm. So, so the main character uh, is Bob. Bob Arctor. Arctor, which sounds a lot like actor, right? Bob Arctor, the actor. Yes, he's going to act as a. Um, he's going as the name Fred, right? That's his. That's his code name, I guess. Is Fred? Uh, yeah. He has. He has somehow has two roommates, right? So he he lives with these two guys, these uh, Luckman and Barris. Um, 
is embarrassed. Now, hold on. See, this, it gets confusing, right? Because he's he's an undercover agent who's trying to catch a a, a dealer, right? He's trying to catch himself. He's trying to catch himself. So, so right. So in That's, the beginning of the novel, he was on the case of a of a dealer who mm-hmm. escapes because he escapes by going into a rehab facility. Yeah, they didn't New put that Path. in the movie. Yeah, they don't say this. So, so he isn't he is a narcotics agent, mm-hmm. and before he's assigned to quote unquote himself, he's searching for this guy who escapes by going to New Path. Yeah, Weeks, the guy, the black dude, Weeks, who was yeah, like, yeah, he's like this yeah. well dressed, he's a very so, well dressed, wore horn rim glasses and stuff, and was like you, a classy looking nigga. And make it a point that once you go into New Path, you get your name stripped, your identity stripped, you disappear. They're not allowed to pursue you. So no matter who you are, once you go to one of these facilities, you're gone. Right. Just but here's what I got. Life. Here's what I got from that scene when they were looking at him and he was he was pretending. Right. He's pretending to be a junkie. That's his deal. He's pretending to be a junkie. He's pretending to need to check in so that he could find this 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 dealer weeks guy. Right. But what these people were seeing was an actual junkie. This guy was actually addicted to substance D and was actually a junkie. That's actually, I was going to uh, interject, but that's actually a story basically from his real life. Right, where he went into rehab. For depression. Right, for depression. And they're yeah, like, he no. He's clearly a junkie. <laughs> like, no, dude, you're, yeah. Well, it's like, the, you remember, you ever see American Dad? You ever see the episode where he gets addicted, where Stan gets addicted to crack? Yeah, and he looks in the mirror and he thinks he looks wonderful. He looks like a normal. Person. <laughs> yes, and yeah, but that's what's going on here. Is he is I'll just, play just a junkie be, on TV? Right, he's playing a junkie, right? But the reality is, is the people, the the woman and the two guys that were at the because you could tell by the way they were talking to him that they they clearly were like, dude, you're a fucking piece of garbage junkie, and you're lucky we're letting you in. Yeah, people call Arthur ugly a few times in this. And I think that's kind of where they're coming from. Right. Basically, like, you look like a fucking junkie. Right. So, and so apparently, so doesn't Barris, no, hold on, isn't, don't they turn out to be the same person? No, okay, so. um, It was very confusing, man. Yeah. Bob and Fred. Bob and Fred. Are the same person. Yes. He's the same person. And because. Of two factors, right? He not only has to um, pretend he's not a narcotics agent when he's hanging out with his friends, but he also has to, at one point, observe his household that's under uh, observation through the company. They put cameras in his own house, and whether or not they know it at the time, they tell him he has to do surveillance on it and that he's allowed to edit it in any way. So because they know he's one of the people in the house... He can edit it however he wants. And this whole time he's on Substance D. So he's starting to split himself. Bob and Fred start to split. Right. And so Bob Archer and Fred Barris, right? That's the. Barris is a different character. So oh, he, okay. That's, no, that's who's, who's Fred Jr. then? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So if you, if you remember the movie, Fred, Fred slash Bob is played by Keanu Reeves. Okay. Yeah. For, for most of the people listening, probably saw the movie, and Barris is um, Barris is Robert the, Downey Jr. So he's this wacky drug addict. Who lives oh, that's right. Barris is the one that's Donna's boyfriend, right? Or that's no, the, no. He so uh, Keanu, Keanu Reeves is 
um, dating the girl. But in the book, though, I thought it was Barris's chick. No, no, no. Or was um, it the other way around? She, he's basically just he's dating the girl. And he's just got trying these to get two Freck. guys who live with him. Oh no, okay, okay I'm confusing. You no, know, it's Freck. Right. Freck wants to boner. Barris is like, I'll make you a gram of cocaine. For That's it. right. Freck aerosol. wants to boner. Yeah, I keep getting these names. Okay, so Freck wants to boner. So which one? Now, Freck isn't even in this this whole deal. So Bob and Luckman and Barris are all living in the house and taking drugs together. Um, yeah, it's kind of like a flop house situation. Right. Okay. Barris is the one. Who's the one with the aphids? That's that's, that's Freck. Freck. That's Freck. No, Freck was helping him. Who actually had Freck the and Jerry? <laughs> so, who actually okay. had Jerry's the aphids? Not in the movie, right? There's, it's a, the, there's a there's a couple characters in the book that are not in the movie, and they kind of combine them. Right, uh, but like Freck finds out about the he like helps dude with the aphids, and he's yeah. like he actually finds, and then when they sober up, oh, there's no aphids. <laughs> that's that's probably what most people are going to remember from this if they saw the movie. Literally, do it just literally reminds me of like some ketamine this. shit. Yeah, like so like it, substance this eats D. Away your brain. Well, yeah, well, the way substance D seems to me is that it's some sort of a dissociative hallucinogenic and an opiate. It reminds me of Naked Lunch with the bugs. Yeah, I've ever seen that. The cockroaches. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a mix, but like like I said, the way that I'm I'm saying the way that I'm picturing the drug because there's a lot of hallucinogenic, the hallucinatory stuff that goes on. I mean, clearly, clearly Bob is hallucinating most of this this story. Like a lot of this shit is probably just a hallucination in his own mind. Well, what happens is he after a while he forgets he's observing himself, and he considers that he's observing Fred instead. So the the longer he goes on with using the drug he's on he's separating the two hemispheres of his brain mm-hmm. and okay so phil phil kiddix his books have like a uh, a sub a surface level narrative and then they have a subsurface narrative so in a scanner darkly the story is that there's a narcotics agent who is basically narking on himself and he's forgetting that he's narking on himself because the drug is affecting his brain. The underlying narrative is that what's happening is he's actually, are you, are you guys familiar with the Heisenberg principle, principle the, like the idea that if something's observed, that the, yes. it, it, the experiment changes. Mm-hmm. So you have a scanner darkly is the idea that he is the scanner and he's scanning uh. the outcomes darkly, right? Instead of like in a, in a, um, in a good way, mm-hmm. so like he's seeing the the situations of the life of of Fred Arthur go on in a in a in a dark way, and he's also separating from himself because the two hemispheres of his brain are splitting. So he forgets he's actually both people. Now, when he's working for this agency, they they're aware that some of their narcotics agents are probably using, so they have to give them these different tests. Um, unlike a Rorschach test where you're supposed to give your interpretation. Yeah, there's only that was kind of funny. The testing thing was I found was amusing. Yeah, and it's funny, one of them is a sheep, right? But he doesn't see the sheep, he sees a dog. Sees a dog. He's like Yeah. Yeah. Well that's the thing is that with the with the Rorschach test, it's the ink blot test, and you can you know, there can be a hundred different things, right? But this is it's a drawing of something and it it is only this. It is not anything else. It is only that. It is only a sheep. It is only a sailboat. It is only right. an eyeball. So it whatever. seems like almost the the whole reason that, that Phil wrote the book 
was that he was trying to get across this idea that he's been into, you know, what he's into right now when he's writing this book is this idea that you have two minds. And I, I think we brought this up on an episode a, a while ago when I mentioned Jekyll and Hyde stuff, but this idea of two minds and the two hemispheres of the brains is, is not, um, it's gone on for, for a long time and there's lots of authors have written about it and, and a lot of different philosophical takes have been taken on the two minds in some ways they call it your, your lizard brain and, and whatnot, but it seems that one side of your brain, that's more, um, that's like the default for linguistic abilities and like interpreting things through your, through your character of speech is the one that's on autopilot usually. But what happens with Arthur when he takes the substance D in combination with this Eisenberg principle is he starts to have two different, um, gauges in his car that tell him you know the how full the tank is so he doesn't know which one is reality he Mm -hmm. has no idea which one is reality and which one isn't so it's almost like a philip kiddick is almost doing a modernized jekyll and hyde with this book kind of yeah in some ways yeah (laughs) it's it's a really weird story um, because he's, yeah, th- I mean, he doesn't realize at the beginning that he's performing surveillance on himself because the other guy, well, first he knows, but then he, forgets. Oh, he knows. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, though, I feel like they do a better job in the book of conveying him that happening. Whereas I mean, it becomes obvious at a point in the movie. Right. But like in the book, you're kind of aware of it more as it's happening. I feel like, yeah, well you are as the reader, but I don't think he, I don't, I didn't get that. He was as much at the beginning. You know what I mean? He I don't, I think he wasn't aware of himself splitting. Hmm. Um, there's also this underlying, um, interesting little thing in the, in the book where they're, they're basically the people he's involved with who he works for, even though they know who he is, they're still using him, right? Because it's such a small friend group. They, they, by process of elimination, they know that Fred is Bob. But they're after this guy, Barris, because he's doing things like trying to make homemade silencers. He's trying to sell his friend's guns. He's right. trying to grind up mushrooms into capsules and sell them to random people. So like, he was, yeah, he was trying to make. Uh, you could make a gram of cocaine from a dollar bottle of solar cane. Yeah. <laughs> He's doing yeah. all the reverse chemistry. Yeah. Whatever. I've basically met people who are almost like Barris in real life. They're out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah every, I knew a guy. One of those characters are based on a real guy. Philip K. Dick knew. I knew well, a guy. They are. Yeah. Well, yeah. I knew, I knew a guy in Berkeley and his nickname was the chemist and he was getting, it wasn't really all that high chemistry. He was making cocaine. Like he was, he would get coca leaves ground up, powdered, sent to him from South America, and he would make cocaine in his apartment. Yeah. Like this guy gets like a gram of coke by buying like suntan spray, solar cane. Oh, he yeah, gets, this, he gets nothing out of that sunburn spray. Yeah, <laughs> they, I don't, I don't. You know, it's funny. They they talk about how it has to stay in the in the freezer for. They never go minutes, back to it, and they never go back to it. It's like they all no, they left it, it in the yeah, freezer and they never got the cocaine. That's what yeah, it is. yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's never cocaine in it, but 
Right, it's solar cane. It's benz benzocaine. It's not the same thing. Well, Barris. So Barris, and to be fair, his silencer. He just put a roll of toilet paper on a fucking. <laughs> I don't know. I forget what he put it on, but it was a little handgun. But it was a yeah. It was a small handgun. Yeah, he said he got <laughs> fired it in the air. Yeah. It was a twenty-two pistol. Was oh, it a twenty-two? Yeah. I thought it was like a twenty-five. Okay, yeah, it was yeah. A twenty-two pistol. Okay. Yeah, I thought like his deal was he essentially was like the big, the big drug dealer and he was trying to pin it all on Arctur because Arctur was going absolutely insane. I think he was just the biggest fed poster in the room. They go, well, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of talk about it in the movie. I forget in the book though. So, well, he wanted to get Arctur wanted to get, um, he was trying to get the big dealer. So that's why he was, he was getting, uh, what's her name? Donna, his girlfriend. Well, not his girlfriend. Bob? Yeah, but he he hadn't like they never like they so never did was, anything. Like, they had like they, they had a relationship, sure, but like she would always like, yeah, you can't touch me there though. Like everybody's always trying to get into my pussy. So you can't have any. So like she um, entra- she entrapped him though. Yeah, I so, mean, so like spoilers, Donna ends up being like an actual alphabet agency. Yeah, Donna ends person. up being a cop. I mean, like that's probably why she but didn't sleep with him. You yeah. know what else is interesting is they mention a couple times in the book that she, while they were sitting around like listening to music, getting fucked up on drugs, she was the one putting substance D into capsules to sell to other people. Yeah, she was the one making the capsules. So the F, the the alphabet agency person was the one actually peddling all the drugs the whole time. Mm-hmm. She's the one that sold them to Arctur. Yep. She's the one who sold them to Freck. Welcome to the alphabet agencies and drugs. So like all the people who are under surveillance, getting fucked up, dying, trying to kill each other. They're all actually getting their drugs from, from, I don't know, they don't say exactly who she works for, but FBI, well, I guess, or something. Right. But then you got to remember substance D is manufactured. It's not a natural. Well, so that's that. So that's kind of how the book ends. Right. So, um, you know, spoilers, they think it's synthesized. Right. And mm. the police are told it's synthesized. Right. That's the whole story. It st- actually grows just like the opiates, uh, just like the poppies do. Mm-hmm. So in the end of the book, um, Arctur basically, his brain is fried and he gets sent to New Path, just like the guy he was originally hunting. And they send him out to a farm and he's taking care of these little blue flowers that they get the substance D from that are grown in the middle of like corn and stuff like that, you know? Right. And, uh, it seems like he got a lobotomy too. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, I think that was just supposed to be the drugs that like, uh, cause the haircut. They talk, they talk oh no, they gave him the haircut. Yeah. That's like that. Well, when you go to yeah, new path, yeah, you get the, he goes, he goes I got violence and he, he's like more deteriorant. Even though yes. he hasn't been taking substance yeah. D. Also, in the movie, Freck has his head shaved at the end, if you didn't know. You're right. Gotta, You're right. We see him in New Path, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that. And also, right. They came into the drug rehab place. They got the the head shave, the fucking, maybe the, maybe the possible lobotomy, uh, definitely detox. Yeah. So he basically so, becomes a vegetable among vegetables. It's yeah. Like, Right and and but the, at the end he he picks one of the flowers. To go farm. He puts the flower in his boot. He's gonna save it for his friends <laughs> at Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a hopeful ending, maybe. Right? But, I mean, no, seventies sci-fi. But like, yeah. But it's just like you know, he he you know he's he's like he he realizes it's drugs and he's gonna you know getting his friends drugs. At the end of the day, drugs. 
that's kind of like what I got at the end of that. The, the last part there at the end of the day, drugs. Yeah. This was like <laughs> a big police police or suckers book. Yeah. This whole, well, I mean, in, in this future, everybody does drugs. Wow. Just like nowadays. Um, and even the cops do drugs. Wow. Just like now. this is, you know, this is also like a Kubrick story. Like, um, another prophet. Yeah. I, right. These guys, you know, these guys are just these prophets who are so on the nose. Um, yeah, I don't know. This is, do you guys think that these, these guys, um, they're given a script to write or this literally, this does come out of their heads, uh, or is this MK ultra coming out of somebody's head? Um, I can give some kind of context to when he wrote scanner darkly. Okay. Um, so I guess allegedly, uh, he had gotten involved with, um, a guy known as, uh, the connection. And this is according to, uh, the guy who wrote, I think it is Ray Nelson, Roy Nelson, the guy who wrote, uh, they live, uh, was friends with him. He was pretty good friends. John Carpenter wrote that though. No, no, not the movie, the book. Oh, the, oh, okay. Uh, There's. Okay, I'm looking at the wrong thing. Um, and uh, he got pretty involved with this guy called uh, the Connection. He did. He didn't name the name of the guy or whatever, but um, I guess this guy was allegedly known for dealing heroin to a lot of people in the beatnik scene. Uh, and William S. Burroughs was brought up, uh, and he was hanging out with a lot of people. He kind of his house kind of was like that house in a scanner darkly, from what I'm told. Kind of it was like a flop house mm. type thing. People would kind of come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he wrote a lot about this later, but his, he, his house was broken into he, his whole entire book, the exegesis of Philip K. Dick is all about that. And he, he talked about it for the rest of his life. Um, exegesis? And uh, I guess. Yes. Sorry. I don't know. <laughs> I heard oh, people and, call it both. So I don't know. I don't and know. And also, I'll be honest. also the, the, the rain Nelson, uh, 1963 short story called Eight O'clock in the Morning was where They Live came from. Ooh, let's check that out. So another one of those things where there's a, a you know the actual title is Eight O'clock in the Morning and the book is or the movie is They Live. That's a you know how do you tell your friends you're going to see Eight O'clock in the Morning? They're We're going to go see this scary movie called Eight O'clock in the Morning. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I hate eight o'clock in the morning. I like to sleep in. Well, there was, a, well, I mean, they all like some scary ass movies for name some really. Okay, yeah, yeah. sorry, Ray things. Nelson and anyway. John. It was John Carpenter's They Live, but the story was by Ray Nelson. Yeah, the story was Ray Nelson. Eight o'clock in the morning. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, you're fine. Yes, that's, um, that's fine. Roddy Piper, <laughs> great movie. Yeah, oh, dude, one of, one of my favorite movies. Yeah, I was gonna say like such um, a great movie. But yeah, so I guess essentially. Uh, Long story short, he doesn't really uh, know who end up broke, broken or end up breaking into his house and breaking into his safe or whatever. And supposedly he had heroin in there and owed money and checked himself in a rehab in Canada for depression. Um, you know, he's as in the book, he claimed, you know, I have depression, but they were like, "You're a junkie." It's obvious. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so pretty much a, he a lot of his life around that time period when he wrote that book was actually just like that, and a lot of the you know every single person in that book was based on a real person. Uh, that that accident of uh, 
I forget who's who does it, but someone stops a car from like rolling over a little kid who's changing a tire in Scanner Darkly. Uh, that that happened to him in real life too. Oh yeah, when the kid was trying to hold the car back. Yeah, he witnessed like some really burnt out junkie that he he knew he was a guy he knew around the area, and he knew he was completely like gone, burnt out, like no brain cells left. But he saw this kid changing uh, a car. Or a tire car, a car on a tire, uh, and the jack stand was about to slip. And somehow this junkie like popped up, noticed it, and pushed the kid out of the way. And when asked later, like why, why, like he didn't just jump in the car and like do anything, he's like, because it was faster to push him out of the way. So like he had enough cognizance there, even though he was that burnt out and gone, to like do it. And that like that really stuck with Philip K. Dick. He said, but like a, every, pretty much everything in Scanner Darkly like happened to him in real life. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff in in his books seemed to, well, a lot of Philip K. Dick's books seem to be like a a blur between his reality and what he writes about. Like, you can't tell, like, did that actually happen to him or did he just make that up for the book? For sure. You really can't tell with him. And he's good at that. And it blends, he blends that really well. Um, he does a great job of writing things that you could just think you're witnessing in your. Oh life. yeah, he's he's a very, he's a very talented writer. Yeah, it's very easy to visualize what he's talking about. You ever read somebody's you know somebody's working and you're just having a hard time picturing it? Yeah, not with his stuff for sure. No. But anyways, um, what, what do we got going on here? It is. Let's take a break. And uh, what are we going to listen to this week, you guys? I put a Fear Factory song in there. I don't think we've ever played them. Oh, okay. Is it in the... All right, cool. Yes, Flesh Hold by Fear Factory. And we'll be back.
All right, everybody, we're back. This is still the Paranormies. I'm still Johnny with Grognak in Aether. We're talking about Philip K. Dick. Um, we went a whole hour and not one dick joke. Not bad. Good Good job, you guys. We'll leave it to the listeners. Yeah. I I said Balzac in the first hour, too. How about that? I mean, you you got a Balzac reference in and... um, Talk about some French writers. Baldriard and Balzac. I don't want to talk about any of those guys. Let's talk about some more Philip K. Dick. Um, Most people would know him... Uh, from the movie Blade Runner, which was uh, not quite like the book, but fr- adapted from the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, 1966 sci-fi novel. Flying cars. Flying cars, yes. And Noodles. No- yeah, Man. little no- noodle noodle spots were still popular. I mean, he was... He wasn't wrong about a lot of stuff, you know. This is a post-apocalyptic tale. Post-apocalyptic tale, which looks like downtown San Francisco right now, minus the flying industrial cars. Minus the flying cars. Call it. That's this all. Came out, World War T. The yeah, only this thing came out with like a, a spurt of movies like Mad Max and right. uh, D- Judge Dredd. All this like big, uh, I don't know. Post post. Uh, well, Judge Dredd was adapted from a comic. Stuff. Judge Dredd yeah, was a yeah. yeah. I'm just saying, I remember this coming out at the same time as like all this other stuff. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Kind of. Um, what was the other one? Um, it was one of Wesley Snipes. What, Demolition Fugitive. Man? Demolition Man. Yeah. yeah, all these movies. Yeah, some of them had. Some of them had more technologically advanced features like Demolition Man. Um, you had technologically advanced yet dystopian futures like Blade Runner. You had uh, technologically retarded, as in like actually gone backwards, like like Mad Max. Um, you know, a completely dystopian. Um, this is like Fallout shit, and I love it. Like Fallout, is that just that? Yeah, it's yeah. like it's like more, a little more, just a little more technologically advanced than we are right now. But like they suffered some serious setbacks. Well, and so in, in uh, Blade Runner, the, yeah, in the movie, yeah, it they seems call it World War T, World War Terminus, World War Terminus, the final World War. Um, and also, you know, it was a little more technologically advanced in that there were actual androids out there amongst people. And also flying cars. Well, I mean, you know, uh, Biden might be a robot right now. Who knows? Yeah, but that's just like one guy. I'm talking like the replicants were out there. There's more than just one, right? Well, that's actually one of the first things I want to say. So I very quickly caught on to the calling these things replicants and it was from my memory of watching the movie right when i was younger they call them replicants mm-hmm. in his book they do not use that word one time yeah i was they, gonna say they call them andes androids andes that's right androids now okay again so now the, this it's, was it's almost like a secret underlining thing in the book that they might 
be replacing humans that the human you knew might have disappeared and became an android. It's, right. That's never even said in the book. It's just suggested. It's just, yeah, they leave it up to you, the reader. Um, but in the book, I mean, but in the movie, they're, they're out in replicants. Now that's again, the movie is not, is not quite like the book, even close. It's a, no, it's not an adaptation. It's just based on it. Yeah, it's one of those based on it. In as much as like you know, a few of the names are the same, and the basic theme is sort of the same. They kind of like just did the a plot. Yeah, yeah, they didn't do any. So, they didn't do any of the subplots at all. Like they didn't care about the empathy stuff or any of that. They're like, he's a cool bounty hunter. He kills the bad androids. Like that makes for for as far as a movie that's as. Well, that was weird. That was really weird. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what happened. happened. <laughs> I have no idea what happened, but it just we started just playing back. Just... It just started playing back. I don't know. Anyways, uh, so yeah, he was just a cool bounty hunter that killed the bad replicants. Makes for so, a great movie. One of the major factors in the book where they really try to get into this idea with hunting, um, retiring non-humans, right? Mm-hmm. The importance of Rick Deckard's job is he's got to be very precise that what he's taking out is not human because human life is very, very rare. Uh, so much so that animals are like basically non-existent. That's why, that's why this, the book is, has something to do with electric sheep, right? So he owns uh, an electric animal. That's what they call them. They don't call them androids they give them a, a separate title as animals they call just call them electric animals but basically animals are so rare that if you have the money what you do is you spend your money on animals because it's so important to have like maybe one of the last horses you know what i mean that mm-hmm. it gives you some kind of uh importance gives you self-worth and stuff so earth is dying because of a they they say it's world war t but what's affecting everything is a dust. In the movies, it's raining a lot, right? It's raining, raining. It's always, yeah, it's always raining in the movie. In the book, it's dust, hmm. which is something we've become acquainted to with the mud floods and this idea of the Phoenix phenomenon, right? I thought that was pretty interesting. So this dust kills, it basically killed everything avian. There's no more birds. Uh, a lot of things like raccoons are dead, a lot of forest-based animals. And... Um, Rick, he owns a fake sheep, an electric sheep. That's the point of the book, right? And so he's trying to hunt down androids so he can get the bounties and buy a real animal. He wants an ostrich at the beginning of the book. <laughs> and um, everyone owns like this price catalog, and they're and the like he has one in his pocket, Sydney's, and they call it, and it has like basically the last price that something was bought or sold on the market as far as animals are concerned. And that's basically what people go by for trading. So he's killing androids who are very close to humans so that he can buy living animals. It's this weird. So people don't know he has an electric sheep. Yeah. He's ashamed. His sheep, his real sheep died. That's Oh wow. Okay. They got like uh, tetanus, I think. Yeah, so he took he didn't fail to take a piece of wire out of the bale when he mm, fed yeah. it, and it died. And so one of the other characters is Isidore, and uh, the book kind of contrasts between these two characters, right? 
And Isidore is, um, he's someone who's deteriorated from the dust. So the people who are still on earth, they're encouraged to leave earth because earth is basically dying. And there's this push to recolonize on Mars and to get people to go to Mars, to incentivize them to take this dangerous travel up to this lonely planet. Mm -hmm. They give you an Android. Hmm. So that's cool. Like, uh, hold on, what kind of Android? Like, do you get to choose what kind of Android? Is it like a sex well, doll? Is it like one a from cheap the Rosin Corp, uh, Rosin Associates? Right, that's what it, Rosen, Rosin, Rosin. Right? Okay, it's one of the things they change in the movie. Is they call it Tyrell Corp instead of Rosin Associates, which is kind of funny. Um, Rachel Rosin, right? So he goes to this company, and the importance with Deckard's character is he needs to give what he thinks is a android this test of it's basically they call it the void conf test and it's basically to measure your empathy because the whole idea behind the book is that humans have empathy and andy's don't so Hmm. that's the point of the test and it actually the interesting part, if you read the book, one of the biggest things you miss if you only watch the movie is Phil gives you the Voidkov test several times in the book to test you for empathy. Yeah, like we were talking about, I think, the other day with JR. Like his whole existence is almost like, like a, a symbol of that. Chicken head. Chicken heads. Now, when they use that term, I don't think they mean it the same way that they do in uh, in the hood, or do they? No, <laughs> it has more to do with the size of his brain because they say it again with another animal. I forget which animal, but it's basically a derogatory term for what they call a special. So ah. you have three you have three character classes mm-hmm. in this. Mm-hmm. You have the Andes. The humans and the specials. Now, what is the difference between an Andy and a special? An Andy is a human who has deteriorated from the dust. So they have brain damage. Maybe they can't see as well. They, you mean specials? Right, right, right. Yeah. And so basically the idea of the main character, Deckard, is he's if, – if you could attribute the, the title Blade Runner – He's kind of in between the Andes and the specials because his line of empathy, like he empathizes with some of the, the Andes that he has to retire, mm-hmm. but he's also like cold and calculated enough to be a bounty hunter. Whereas Isidore, the, the chicken head, like the other side of the story, he empathizes so completely with living things, he doesn't understand the difference between androids and humans. In fact, he works for a company that's basically a veterinary company, but it's actually a covert repair shop for electric animals. Yeah, one of the things in the book that's not in the movie is he accidentally brings a live cat into work that's dying or dead, and they're like, yeah, you brought a live cat in, bro. You can't do that. He also befriends um, the group of like, so the the whole idea is Decker is chasing this group of um, eight androids 
that came back from Mars to Earth, and they killed people to get there. You know, basically uh, pirated a shuttle. And um, this uh, this guy Isidore basically befriends some uh, one of them in particular, and he doesn't understand that she's an android. Like his his empathy is so high that he can't tell the difference between the two. So it's 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 really interesting because the book cuts out um, an entire character almost. Like they have him in the movie, but he he plays such a small role that he's almost forgettable. Well, the movie is again. I mean, how how long is the book in if uh, in audiobook form? Who, who how, is how the forgettable one, Gardner? Um, Isidore is basically not in the movie. Yeah, like, he's really really. I so I turned it off after like an hour when I was watching it the other night. <laughs> but uh, even in that hour, he was barely in it. He's so he was good. like he was such he's a so huge part movie. of the book. Like like I so said like. He pretty much was a part of that that void comp test you're getting from Philip K. Dick by reading the book. Like he yeah. was a part of that. So he's the character you are supposed to em- empathize with the most, right? And you're you're almost supposed to question the way you empathize with Deckard because of some of the things he does. Like in the end, what Deckard is doing is he's hunting down androids to just buy it. Uh, a living animal and to have it live on his roof and like spoilers at the end of the book it uh his ex-girlfriend android pushes it off the roof and kills it so like Like the same day (laughs) in the same day the whole book takes place in like a day so he, he he pushes himself to exhaustion which like a human shouldn't be able to do and the coolest part of the book is you're you're supposed to question if he's even an android and even though at one point you're told he's not, like you're specifically told he is not an android, he still acts like one because he's doing such irrational behaviors all the time. And if you watch the movie, Roy Batty, who has a much bigger role in the movie, he the, the specific thing he says in the end of the movie is that he's acting irrationally. And so from an android's perspective, the human is acting irrationally, which is interesting. I highly suggest anyone who's watched the movie to to read it, and because you you'll enjoy the fuck out of the book. Hmm. That's you, Johnny. Well, I'm gonna have to read the book now because or listen to it, whatever. Or listen to yeah, how yeah, that's what I'm saying. How long is the uh, the book? Listening to it. Uh, so weird. I I was listening to like a six hour and 40 minute version and Grognak listened to like a nine hour and something minute version. I think one was just read slower than the other, but both of them had all the chapters. Okay. Yeah. I read a performance. <laughs> I, I can't even say read. I keep saying read and it feels like cheating. Yeah. I, fair, I, fair. I soaked we it up through osmosis. <laughs> But yeah, instead of listening to shitty podcasts about um, politics and stuff, like listen to some cool sci-fi stuff because you know even if you can't go to space, like it's still an interesting thing. Some of these books that are basically labeled sci-fi, sure, novels. and it's not. Well, these are supposed to be sci-fi, and they're well, really it is. Not. It is science fiction, and the science fiction doesn't necessarily have to mean outer space, right? Maybe it just means we don't have it yet, but I know it's coming, right? Like, right. I, I, I mean, 
in a way like the space and like the laser beams and like all that shit are kind of cursory to his stories anyways they're just they're they're like it's an element like sure like at the same time the story is really what you're there for oh you just you just reminded me actually um in the book they not only have laser what do they call them laser pistols or laser beams yeah they're like little barrel pistol laser barrels but he also has an actual old school gun deckard uses a gun and that's what he takes the androids down with right he uses androids fail to take him down with the laser beams every time right there's so many different little things you can pick up when you go through these the names, the name of all, all the characters in the books, they mean something. Um, I write a little. I wish I could write more, but um, when you can, when you have the time to work out every little thing in your story, even the names of your characters can mean something. So, Deckard, one of the things I, I pulled up with him off the top was basically ditch digger or someone who basically, you know, in some ways digs holes or something like that, or like okay. a worker. So he's the he's the bounty hunter, right? And then you have Isidore, which ooh, is uh, the gift of Isis, or like to save, though, right? Is what, what that's supposed to mean? So it's almost this character when you're reading the book, you want to save him in a way. You feel bad for this guy. It's just like his brain is rotting in the dust. So it's pretty cool. No matter what book you read, you should look into the the. the characters' names, because that's always something I've picked up on, and I thought immediately to, to look into it with uh, Philip's books, and he, he absolutely does it, too. In yeah, fact, specifically he, with his books. Oh, yeah. Sure. He, in it's fact, intentional. I don't want to spoil anything, but hopefully a book we'll talk about in the future, he straight up puts himself in the character of a book, and he masks himself as a character in the book. And Valis, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, hands down. Yeah, Valis is... Valis is when I, I started listening to him, I was like, man... I forgot how weird his guy, this guy's books are. Yeah, do you guys, do you want to end with that little note about like how read, weird read some the of this three is? Stigmata, really? dude. Read what? What'd the you say? Stig- the three stigmata. Yeah, he's it's got like some a, very odd like names. Insane. The man who japed. That's like his favorite book. He said the what? The man who japed. How do you <laughs> jape? What does that mean? That's the name of one of his books. Strangely enough, I know the word from Donkey Kong. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Jungle Japes, bro. Okay. Hold on. He's <laughs> a book just that's a practical joke. You right? What's a practical what's... joke? Jape. Yeah, it's a practical joke. Oh yeah. Huh. I mean, I know that's this the is... name. So what's... Japers, Jokers. Japers, Joker. A jape is a joke. I'd, yep, that's what it says. I, f- I, f- I feel like this is like an, an old English thing. Or am I being Mandela right now? Probably. I don't know. I don't know. Where's Skull when you need him? Um, it's probably working It's Yape. Out. It, ya- oh, it's, oh, it's a soft J. Yape. <laughs> it's a man who yaped. He's yaping. That's weird. I don't like that word now. I don't like it. I do not. I don't think Philip K. Dick would have wrote a book that's called The Man Who Yaped. You know who would like the word Jape? Who? Talk about <laughs> you got Man who like gaped. <laughs> who gaped? No, it's not a G though. No, no, Grognak. No, don't work for him. Yeah, <sighs> it's a J, not a G. Right, right. Favor. That's why I'm. Yes, I know. That's 
So one of the things I thought was an interesting difference mm-hmm. between the movie and the book. This is some stuff that that you can catch up on, Johnny, because you have seen the movie. Um, like I said, they changed the Roz in association to Tyrell Corp. In the book, the, the main races were white people, Caucasians, mm-hmm. Russians, and Germans. Yeah, Polakov was like supposed to be a WOP officer from Russia. Yeah, and uh, Luba Luv was German mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, the only character name? that supposedly looked a little Mongolian was Roy Batty. Uh, There's a lot of Asians in the movie. Dude, oh yeah, the, well, that's Asians all over the movie. Well, and that's the thing is, well, who's the Asian guy following him? Well, hang on, hang on. In, in a lot of, in yeah, a lot it's of, supposed to be Brian. Guys, in a lot of science fiction, futuristic science fiction movies, there's always Asians because Asians are are just they look like aliens. I guess is what it is. You know, they're bug people or something, and it's just like, of course they look futuristic, right? I don't know. Do they or they they could be both? That's the thing about Asians. They could be futuristic or they could be uh, primitive. Just depends on what kind of suit they're wearing. If they're wearing a space suit, like right, and and serving you like noodles. From behind a, uh, in a very shiny, or what should have been a shiny little metal floating n- noodle hut, <laughs> or like a old timey kimono, right? Asians they fit into all kind of dystopia. I did see that weird video from China earlier with the don't litter, with the like little Blade Runner looking god thing that they called it that comes out oh, of the, the ai god yeah so fucking weird dude yeah i mean i don't i don't know maybe a really bad translation i don't know necessarily that they're calling it god because it tells you to probably not the trash. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's one of the last aspects of the novel that was missing from the movie is they have this idea of mercerism right that's why life is so yeah. precious they all have this thing called an empathy box mm-hmm and people dial in, like, I guess, frequencies or something, and it makes them feel a specific way. And they also have a cathode ray tube, you know, your TV, but it's got handles on it. And you could basically, like, upload your emotions and share them. It's just very... Um, so Instagram. Literally social networking. So, like, Instagram. Yeah, Facebook and yeah. stuff, right? <laughs> And they call it mercerism. So they're connecting to this idea of uh, a man who is gone beyond the realm of reality in some way hmm. and that they can connect to him with this technology. And the other um, battle, the other entity for the, the nemesis for the battle of their psychic souls is this 23-hour-a-day Jimmy Kimmel style daytime TV TV guy uh, named Buster Friendly. Now you described it as battle for psychic souls. That was what JR said. I just want to say that. That's like how he, that, that's how he described stupid. it. And he's supposed that, to be dumb. Right. But that's how he describes it. Like between like because he saw he sees Buster Friendly's presence as 23 hour a day broadcast or whatever it is. And then he also <laughs> sees Mercerism and he sees them as both like competing for their psychic souls is what he refers to them as. So even though this guy is so stupid, he can't realize the difference between a cat and an electric cat. He still understands that there's a difference between this um, eternal entity. It's basically a um, it's a madness of what Christ might be, right? Not to get into Bible stuff, but like the idea of Christ, because they the the idea of mercerism is resurrection. 
in, in its nutshell. So he says that that basically you're um, you're there's these two struggles over humanity, which are Buster friendly, which he discerns to be possibly an android, or Mercer, which is this interesting overtone in, in the book. And it never really comes to a con- conclusive entity, but it gives everybody in the storyline an idea of what's good and evil to base their beliefs on. So like for Deckard, um, Deckard and his wife, like they supposedly are followers of mercerism because they have an empathy box. They use the cathode ray tube, but he also like, he has to distinguish the idea between something that's alive and not alive because he can't kill something that's alive because he's a follower of mercerism and the people who are involved in this dogma, um, they basically like they, they have an undistinguished evil. So like when they share this empathy with this figure that's going up this mountain of like before he falls down again, what they call the tomb world, you're getting pelted by rocks. And when you physically connect in this way, like he actually gets physical, like actual um, damage to himself by yeah, rocks that like are thrown the rocks. at him. Yeah. So like, but they don't know who's throwing the rocks. So like, the people who are connecting through the cathode ray tube are getting physical harm to their bodies as humans, and they don't know who's throwing the rocks. And it's so it's subjective. Like whoever the evil is is left to be subjective. So in Deckard's point of view, the evil is the android. So the the whole book has this interesting idea of. Like the, you could call it yin and yang, maybe. That's kind of what I came up with at the end of this. Because you can't have, he talks about how some animals can't have empathy. Because if animals had empathy, they wouldn't kill one another to eat. Like some animals have to eat meat, right? So if they understood in a conscious way, and like in, in an empathetic way that they were eating other animals, then they couldn't exist. They would just go extinct. Like some of the animals that have gone extinct already. So they have this weird idea about the cycle of life. It's kind of interesting overtone to the whole thing. So like this guy is such an interesting writer because he gives you a story, but he's actually got like almost three layers of his narration through the book. I feel like I went on a tangent. Now <laughs> <laughs> you're good. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. Um, like, it, how is what is humanity? That's the question of the book. What is sure. humanity? Right, because well, humanity has empathy. Well, then, right, empathy is is what defines humanity according to the book. Right. Yeah, it seems to be. Yeah, yeah, having having the empathy because I mean Rick and uh, was it Rush uh, test themselves. Right. Uh, and then uh, Rick finds out, you know, like he has sympathy for androids and he asks, like, you know, do we test for sympathy in androids? And he, he's like, or sympathy for humans, you know, to androids, because that's a, something only a human could have as a trait. And they're like, no. And he's like, maybe we should. He's like, no, we can't be bounty hunters, bro. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. So he is, he is the Blade Runner. So if you think of like being on the edge of the blade, he's like he's living life between the two because he has empathy for androids, but he's also like has to kill them. It's his job. 
Yeah. yeah. And and the the book does a much better idea of I think well, it's just humanity. I think the empathy is just so that he can bone the female ones. That is briefly yeah, touched on. But but you What's know what? that? The, the reason that they push that out, they yeah. do and and I think the reason they do that, he does so spoilers, he like scores with an android at the end. And the reason he does it is because he he realizes he's empathetic towards the female androids he's killing. And he then wonders, he also realizes she's only doing it to distract him from going to kill Red Daddy. Right. Because, yeah, yeah. yeah because that's he's her. Getting, she's she's programmed to do that. She was programmed to, like, bang the bounty Wa- hunter. Yep. Wa- we'll watch him. And then when, whatever, whatever he picks up on that he's finding out these androids makes them androids and not human. She's supposed to pick up on that and make the next model even better. Pretty much. Right. I thought it was interesting. They call it the Nexus 6 model. Um, you know the sixes and the number of man and everything, right? Right. Yeah. So the big, the big, but it's idea, still imperfect. That big idea is that this newest model of androids is supposed to be so close to humans that it's more and more difficult for um, them to discern who is human and who isn't. Hmm. And he wrote this in 1966. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This guy has straight up said that two of his books come from information beamed into his head. Right. So little, little, literal Aleister Crowley type stuff, like just had, just put there by who knows what or who. He doesn't know. He didn't, he never knew. He wondered if, he wondered if it was Russians and he intercepted a radio wave. Sure. He never knew. Could have been MK Ultra. Could have been MK Ultra. But he insisted he had a beam of information sent into his head. Oh, crazy guy. Right. I mean, but but PKD did a lot of drugs. I mean, let's be honest. The man was married, what, six times? Dude, but like how many drugs do you have to do to learn language that you've never heard before? Hmm. This guy, yeah, there, he literally was, picked up a language he never knew. Well, what there did, was the, the German. He like, he like figured out what his daughter's illness was before they like they knew to diagnose it or something to that hernia, yeah uh in, uh in uh, it was a hernia i think yeah i think that's what Inglonia it was. hernia or whatever they call it Inguinal. hernia in her cr- okay inguinal hernia yeah some interesting stuff so basically you know even though this guy wrote books that most of our listeners have probably seen a dozen movies to Minority Report. Yep. Total Recall. The Adjustment Bureau. Total Recall came from a short story. That's right. This guy went to his grave being called a fucking loony. Mm-hmm. But he says things that if you look at what he says now in 2023, you're like, he he's called he's now called a prophet. Right. Nostradamus, again, somebody who literally called it so many years ago. I mean, we're going on. Oh, and I just want to say he also said he called it that people like us would be called schizos. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's another element of the book, by the way, too. Uh, schizos can't pass the void comp test. Really? Yeah, like they can't tell if they're androids or not. <laughs> you have problems with empathy. Yep. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> it was flat empathy, is that what they called it? Yeah, yeah. there's like a, one or two different reasons. But yeah, essentially, they literally use that terminology. Schizos can't pass it. Pretty funny. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. He he called Philip K. Dick called the schizo phenomenon back then too. He did. He sure did. Seven almost seventy years ago. This guy wrote this stuff. And on the nose. Again, was he, you know, I mean, was he fed this information? Was it beamed to his head via uh Jewish space lasers or you know, was he MK Ultra? Was he just some sort of savant? Just a drug-addled savant, much like a Hunter S. Thompson or a Charles Bukowski or any of those Gonzo-type uh, drug author journalists, right of that era. There was a lot of them. Ken Kesey. I like his stuff. You know, I think once in a while you just get a national treasure. You think so? I mean, I don't know, dude. It just seems to, to me a lot of, you know, Sir Francis Bacon-y type stuff here. You know, hundreds of, a hundred and some odd short stories, five collections of short stories, 44 novels. Adderall. Benzos. Lots of Adderall. Yeah, but yeah, like. No, he did. <laughs> He had a. He definitely had a period um, when he did amphetamines. Um, oh he yeah. He said psychedelics never like agreed with them pretty much. Mm-hmm. So he didn't really do them that much. He was not a big. No, he was not a big fan. He tried them like once or twice. Of psychedelics. Yeah. He, no, he, he doesn't like. He he really. I think uh, from the, what I've gathered, he seems he looks down on what he called uh, dopers in a way too. People who just like space out. Mm. No, he liked his drugs to be functional. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. So maybe what you will from that, maybe he tuned his frequency into something that, you know, got him to a a level of attenuation where um, all of this information just flowed from the universe. It was interesting uh, watching a couple documentaries on him. Somebody mentioned they were going through his wives. He was like wife number three, wife yeah. number four. And he was, he was like, seems like he burns them out over around five years. Every five years he burns his wife. Out. Could you imagine being married to him? Being married to a guy that's up for 30 days at a time. He's the kind of, he's the kind of, he was the kind of amphetamine user that would stay up until his body said, all right, time for sleep. We're just shutting down. Dude, he's, he's typing in his typewriter. There's no paper in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, he he came up with the stories about the aphids because he's seen shadow people. You know what I mean? Wish we could have him on. He did. He, later in his life, he would tell people he was going to, like, receive this letter called the Xerox Missive, right? That was, it It was kind of like, I don't know if you're familiar with... Uh, HP Lovecraft's like the the book of the Mad Arab. Yes. Like if you read if you read it you go insane, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh he uh it's it's just like condensed to a letter basically and whoever reads it like dies and he was like convinced he was going to get it in real life. Right. Oh my god, hey guys, guess what guess what's like sitting this, He would tell people. Just strangely enough, guess what's sitting on my bookshelf right now? I just looked over. A can of HP Lovecraft book? A can of solar cane. There you go. Like isn't that isn't that what he got? What do you got? Let me see. What, what's the active ingredient? Here we got here. Is it benzocaine? No, it was aerosol. Lidocaine. Lidocaine. Is it, I think he says benzocaine. Is he said benzocaine. It's yeah. basically cocaine. Yeah. 
But solar cane is what they is, <laughs> is what the case, was, but yeah, <laughs> it's not. But yeah, again, I don't think that's stuff that you can just get at the store, and you're not going to be able to just you know reverse engineer it through some sort of oil. No, you know what though? That's one of the the most entertaining parts of that book is just reading the skits, the drug yeah. addled, the weed addled <laughs> brains. Not weed. No. Oh come on! Come on, you guys! You know weed weed makes you uh, into a paranoid schizophrenic psycho. I just, I just had to say addled brains, whatever. Though. Weed addled substance D addled brains. My my favorite is uh, weed induced schizophrenia. I've never heard of that. That's like a super drunk ritual song, isn't it? No, that's a strain of weed. Nowadays, <laughs> I don't know, man. No, the stuff they have nowadays for weed is pretty. It's pretty, pretty strong, pretty far out there. But ain't no substance D. Ain't no substance D, and definitely not whatever the hell Philip K. Dick was taking. Philip Kindred Dick, PKD. That's an, another thing he he would do too. I was uh, telling you guys earlier. Um, he he was like a big proponent of like that whole like inject me with a bunch of vitamin B thing they were doing in the 70s. Oh, like a, yeah. A therapy. He, he mentioned that a few times. Yeah. Oh, the B12 injections? Mm-hmm. That actually you know, works. That, that gave you um, extra sensory abilities. Straight Increases up. Increases his real, bro. Dude, I mean, that stuff actually works. Uh, my friend's mom, when she Probably was going through menopause, <laughs> when, my, when my friend's mom was going through menopause, she would get a B12 shot. And you could tell when she got it. <laughs> like she was like wired for like two days. <laughs> wired up old ladies. Yeah, yeah. Well, she wasn't that old. I mean, we were kids, but like she was only fifty. I mean, like, well, if you were a kid, she was an old lady. Right. Right. Anyway, um, no, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, he was he was doing the 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 B twelve as like a booster <laughs> to the the methamphetamine salts he was taking. Or whatever the hell right. I was taking back then. The, they were taking the... What the hell were they taking back in the, in the early 60s for... It was just amphetamines, right? It wasn't like methamphetamines, yeah, it was just amphetamines. amphetamines. Yeah, just, he he, like, he yeah. mentions benzos a lot. Benzos, black beauties. Yeah. yeah. I think... Uh, yeah. Wizards, bangers. Choice. Yeah. You have to go, you have to, go like to a, the Hunter S. Thompson uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas for the rundown of all the drugs. Remember, he, he gives that list of all the stuff he had in his suitcase. Oh, that, ta- that fake shit like it. No, he was taking on vacation. Like the stuff. The ether. The stuff he was taking, uh-huh. in, you know, in a couple of pints of tequila yeah, yeah. and blah, 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 uh-huh. blah. He's like a, a ver- an assortment of uppers, downers, wizards, bangers. I can't remember what he said. but He had like holsters in the suitcase for like everything. To yeah, be. every every bottle had know, its own little holster. Yeah. Very well prepared. Stephen King has basically done a movie about Adrenochrome. I super don't believe it. Who? Stephen King. Too? Uh, no, uh, he did um, Dr. That's Sleep. about Adrenochrome, bro. It's just god-awful. Yeah. Now, Hold I, on. Now, I, now I don't believe it even more. Which one is the one you were talking about, Grognak? Dr. Sleep. Sleep. Dr. Sleep? Or Dr. Sleep. Yeah, it's a sequel to The Shining. Hmm. Huh. Oh yeah, that's right. Though. And the telekinetic, telepathic, is ja- remote viewing people is um, Jack Nicholson no. in it? No. Then it's not any good. No, it's not any good. We um, were talking about Jack it, Nicholson. Is it a sequel or Obi-Wan, a prequel? Obi Wan Kenobi's in it. 
Hello there. Who the fuck is that? Oh, we, you want, you Liam Neeson? Liam Neeson or... I don't know. Or McGregor? Ewan McGregor? Okay, because there's been three. And then there's also uh, Sir What's-His-Face, the one that played the original. Yeah. Obi-Wan. Um, we were talking about Jack Nicholson at work yesterday. It was kind of funny. Uh, you know he's like he's got like zero backstory, right? I was literally about to say that. Yeah, he's like <laughs> he just like showed up in Laurel Canyon. No social security number, no family, no nobody, no nothing, no mom, maybe, no dad, no. Maybe, maybe he's Andy. Maybe. I mean, he just showed up out of nowhere and became probably the greatest actor of all time. Ooh. I'm just saying, like, considering, right? Think, think of the movies he's been in and some of the stuff he's done. He's one of the greatest. Oh yeah, like I mean, time. he's out of his heyday now, but like, yeah, he was like one of the biggest actors. Uh, yeah, I mean, go, you got you've got a few good we're not, men. We're not you've got talk some, about Batman movies again, are we? You got well, you, you've got no. I'm talking about Jack Nicholson. <laughs> well, you got he's the best Joker. That's where it begins and ends. He's we're not going to talk about the best Joker now, are we? I mean, yeah, it's clearly it's no. Jack Nicholson. Um, he's the best. He's the closest to Caesar Romero, which is which is Batman the TV show from the '60s, but. He was oh. like fun, creepy. Yeah, but anyways, but Jack Nicholson, dude. Jack Nicholson was uh, he was the devil with the 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 witches of Eastwick. He was uh, he was in The Shining. He was in the Wolf movie. Uh, he was, um, dude. He's been in he's been in so many movies. I can't even think of the ones. I know he's been in like a bunch of those romantical fucking eighties movies that everybody loved so much back then. Uh, but yeah, he had yeah, literally he's no. He's definitely in like the separate category of like the super celebrities. Yeah, exactly. Sure. You know, he, he was able to, you know, able to spill chili at the Lakers game on the floor at the floor seats. You know, on he's no longer allowed to bring food, but he still has his seats there. You know. All right, celebrity death match: Jack Nicholson versus Bill Murray. Ooh. Um. I would just like to see Bill Murray get his ass kicked. Dude. Ja- yeah, Jack Nicholson. I mean, as far, well, as far as careers go, I think Jack Nicholson's had a bigger career. This is celebrity death match. Celebrity death match. I don't, I don't. I think Jack have Nicholson. You seen the claymation? I don't. Yeah, I don't know, dude. I mean, like, I can't see Bill Murray doing anything violent. I can see Jack Nicholson being violent. So, like, true celebrity true. death match. I the see filming Jack of Nich- The Shining. Yeah, The Shining. Have you like, ever seen any of the behind the scenes shit with him? Yeah, just storming around. Yeah, with the axe all angry and shit. Yep. Being in character. <laughs> in character, quote. Yeah, just being, <laughs> just being, just being him. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, that's. Yeah, that's Jack Nicholson. He's never been in a Philip K. Dick production. That's what I was trying to figure out. That would have been cool. No, but he was in Ken Kesey's masterpiece, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That was a great movie. That was, and that's where he got started, I believe. When is when is where he got started? Well, no, because he was in some other stuff when he was younger too. Yeah, he was in that movie where he was worked on an oil rig. Mm. What it's called? But but for real though, like to to come out of literally nowhere, no backstory. He's got no. No family, no nothing. Just Jack Nicholson. Hmm. No kids. Very strangely built old person now. 
He's supposed to be one of those ones that has tunnels under his house that connect to the Playboy Mansion. Oh, I'm sure. Whatever the fuck I'm that sure. means. What? Oh, I'm sure. Well, that whole, all that area, it's probably got an entire underground level that was connected at one point above ground, but. I feel like some shit like that, you don't like have built, you become a part of this inner circle that allows you to live on houses with that. Exactly. That's how it works. You don't, yeah. His first movie was in 69, <laughs> Easy Rider. He was an Easy Rider, that's right. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yep. With, with uh, Peter Fonda. And um, who else was in that movie? And we're testing the depths of my movie memory here. I don't remember who was an Easy Rider besides Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda. But yeah, so Philip K. Dick. Wrote a lot of stuff. Uh, was he one dude that was just so prolific and and prophetic and prolific at the same time? It's possible. I think so. It's possible. It's not probable. I'm going to go with yes. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, based on the amount of shit I've watched it to, between the not even only today but the past couple of days, I've seen a lot of like him talking and him like I don't know. I mean, who knows? I guess, but <laughs> who knows with anything? Right. Yeah, it didn't. He probably want like you to Biden. speculate. It didn't look like an android who was giving that speech in France. I I think we have shared that it, on our channel. Again. I'm not Maybe saying we'll that he was sure. an android. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is no, no, that I, yeah. he could be another, you know, CIA front for a group of writers. I'm saying, yeah, I think he he'd want you to be speculate an android on that. because it's based on our episode. I don't think he's an android, though. I don't think anybody thinks he's an android. <laughs> he did have a book where there was an android president, though. Yes. Yeah. Which, you know, we probably have right now. I mean, you know, or may not just be, I mean, not an android, just an animatronic president, right? That's all, I mean, that's all Disney is. And they had that weird freaking rabbit, like, thing. They built that robot thing. I'll have to find the video if you haven't seen it. I'll send it to you. It's like jumping around on stage and shit. Hmm. Like reaches out to like be picked up by the guy who's like, you know, debuting it to the crowd. Weird. It's extremely weird. Hmm. Supposed to be like Hobbs from Zoo- Zootopia or Hops or whatever. Officer Hop. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love how that movie they have the uh, the predators being policed by what would normally be prey. And they never get into how that situation even came about. Right. And it's like, I guess, I guess it was a shock collar treatment. Generational shock collar treatment until the predators were no longer predators. Right. Like how did that situation arise? Well, (laughs) yeah, but they just, they just skip over that. And it's just, you know, just so happens that officer hop or whatever her name is, the bunny there gets to be a cop. Right. And bad guys are like foxes and, you know, lions and whatnot. Are you talking about Zootopia? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, related I, to that robot. I just find it funny. Yeah, you mentioned the robot. The yeah, movie. yeah. I just find it funny that, like, it, it, these movies with the suspension of disbelief, with you know, especially with your anthropomorphized animals in general. I never watched that movie before, but... It was on today in my house as I have many kobolds running around here. And I heard them say something about like someone called the rabbit cute. And she was like, no, only see only other rabbits are allowed to call each other cute. You're not supposed to call rabbits cute. And I was like, oh my God, what are you watching? Right. 
It's just, it's, I don't know. I don't, right. I don't know, man. It's terrible. There's nothing. I mean, unless you're, Go unless you want to like. Fox and the Hound, learn about life and death. <laughs> Bambi. <laughs> In MK Ultra. Right. Here, 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 children, watch Blade Runner. Have your, yeah, your trauma based mind control with your buildup and release of trauma. You know, one of the coolest parts about the movie is Roy Batty's character. Really? I found him kind of like a cheap supervillain in the movie, whereas in the book, he was more like heartless and like just not heartless in the sense of evil, but like just like lack of empathy. You know what I mean? Because that was the big thing. But like, so here's an interesting parallel for for our super fantasy nerds, right? So there's a big comparison in, um, I think he looked. I did. I do want to that though. I think he looked like. I think he. I, that's how I pictured him looking. It, yes, absolutely. You pictured him looking uh, like Rucker Hauer. Kind of. That kind of the the, the you hair. Can't not. Once you even see him in a <laughs> meme, like that's him forever. No, I know. But, I know. That's. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> oh shit! What was I going to say? Uh, Roy so, Batty. Yeah. So his character, almost with, if you relate it to fantasy instead of sci-fi. In the fantasy setting, you have elves compared to humans who are living much, much longer lives, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this idea where elves are filled with much more wisdom and like um, some kind of cultural her- um, meaning with their heritage because they live much longer lives and stuff like that. They're not as destructive and things like that. And you have the reverse with the androids because even though it's not really, I don't remember if they mentioned it in the book, but at least in the movie, they mentioned that the Nexus Six is so close to a human. One of the failsafes is that they only live for four years. So the point of Roy Batty's character in the movie is he is seeking more life. So if you listen to our music break, he's like, "I want more life." Um, he's going to his creator, like his god, and he's asking for longer longevity in his life. So Roy's character kind of has this interesting way of looking at the very short term of life he lived as a combat android because he's seen more things than most humans have seen, even though they live a much longer life. And he's he's like, well, the irony in this is like when I'm gone, like the memories are gone. No one's even going to know what I saw. So that's kind of an interesting way that the movie ends. If you've seen the movie. Yeah, from what I gathered uh, in the adaptation. From what I gathered in the book, too, his character was obviously leading all of them, right? Like the the fleet of androids that like escaped Mars. Yeah, he was the ringleader, and he was creating a drug like for androids that like fused them together, like the Mercer box. And that's actually what he was being like rounded up for. He was like creating a new cult for androids. <laughs> But they can't experience like the empathy box. So he was, he was, what he was doing was like making something that like kind of allowed them to do that. Hmm. Welp. Welp. That's a good start for Andrew. Uh, Andrew. For Philip K. Dick. Where the fuck did I get Andrew from? Androids. Philip K. Dick. Andy's. Andy's. Yes. He wrote a lot of books in our our chat room all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Those are bots. Yeah. Talk about Andy's dude. 
Well, he wrote a lot of books. Uh, we talked about A Scanner Darkly and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? There are many more uh, we may get into in the future. Um, a lot of his stuff, came, you know, a lot of movies, a lot of a lot of media came out of his stuff. So that's kind of why I, I'm I tend to lean towards he may be, um, you know, given stuff to push narratives. Like he's definitely. I mean, he's definitely, uh, those movies have definitely shaped sci-fi. You know, I mean, well, a lot of them are some of the we, biggest we, sci-fi movies. One of the reasons we chose him for the for a Paranormies episode is he went to the grave saying that a man in a high castle and, um, what is it, Flow My Tears, the policeman said, are both books he was, that he writ, that he, he, he made these books. Right. He wrote, he the wrote books. them, right? But they were beamed into his head, and he went to his grave saying this. So, yep. if you're wondering why this is a paranormies author, uh, <laughs> because he insists so. <laughs> there you go. I mean, Robert Anton Wilson, who was friends of him, jokingly said, "Who knows? Maybe he was part of the MK Ultra project," and he yeah. didn't even know it. Yeah, he right. wondered. He wondered. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, he's not going to know. You know, you're, how would you know? How right. would you know if you were part of the part MK of the Ultra thing? Project. It's not knowing, I guess. Right. Yeah, there's definitely a lot. There's a lot you could talk about with him. There's sure. so much, so much stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna get out of here, Aether. Thanks for coming by. Hell yeah! Thanks for having me. Yeah, Grognak. We'll. Uh, See you. Or we'll see you around in the next one. No, I, actually, you'll be here for for Tuesday's uh, Nationalist Inquirer. That'll be fun. Um, live over on Pilled, D Live and Odyssey. You guys will be there. I'll be there. Heck yeah! Yeah. All right. Well, there will be a creepy pasta following this, and uh, we'll see y'all later. It. Time travel makes you gay. Twice on Tuesdays, there was a particular truck that came through the neighborhood of Cormac Avenue. It had tinted windows, two ladders on the roof, and a large stencil lettering for Drain Relief Incorporated. Ever since the lights came on in the midsection of the apartment building, the truck made routine stops. One man in one man out. Nothing to call attention, aside from the too simple schedule for comings and goings. With resources as scarce as fuel, a vehicle of any kind coming to a pattern was worth a good look. Resch was casing the building complex for the Bureau in San Francisco's Department of Investigative Affairs concerning outlaws. A very specific brand of outlaws. Androids to be exact. The trail had gone cold on a pair of immigrants from Mars who had commandeered a vessel for hostile action, likely ending the lives of the previous owners. And here on Earth, among the dust and decay of the has-been, we inheritors exist in the shadow of former precedents. We fill the shoes of dead men, as cursed as that may be. 
Law and order must be upheld at the cost of our own humanity, they say, so as to save the souls of the unborn. Resh watched the work van enter the premises of the empty apartment parking lot and turn off its lights. It sat dormant for several moments until it jostled about with movement and the back doors opened from within. A hooded man stepped out carrying a cooler-sized container. Here we go. Resh stepped one foot over the other cautiously down the secluded steep path he had been surveying from. His hover car was parked on the other side of the bluff behind him and out of sight. He moved his hand to the grip of his old service pistol, a model outdated but trustworthy to him. Slowly, he started down towards the building complex with the cover of night. The pebbles slid and rolled down around his feet as he tried to keep his bearings. All this time casing the location would go to waste if he couldn't get in quietly. Up to the building now, Resh trailed the footprints in the dust that led from the Drain Relief Inc. van to a small service dock in the back. He turned the knob slowly with one hand, his pistol gripped in the other. The job was big, and he knew it. It had to be more than just rogues hiding in a musty, empty building. And most of the area around him looked antiquated by time. Kippel overcame the order and life here, and had embalmed it. The belongings of those who left Earth were scattered about. Doors to rooms were ajar, and suitcases, some half-packed, lay upset in the hallway. The path was easy to track, and Resh became the wolf. His fear ran on high, and his ego became immense with every step. No one lived like this, except us in the world, he thought to himself. He stopped at the end of the hallway that split two ways at an intersection. Which way to go? The decrepit wall to his right made a sound like it was hit by a wrecking ball. A hand burst through, and with seemingly another explosion, a pair of plaster dust fingers gripped for Resh and his weapon. Had he not been prepared to die already, his attacker would have found a man who could spring such a trap on. But Resh had seen this trick before. Andes were predictable to him when they were being hunted. He dropped down as the wall crumbled away to the juggernaut-like motion of the android. He let the thing clamber over him, tripping up on the remaining rim board of the wall, and then he brought himself up to topple the heavy Andy over his body and upside down against the adjacent wall. He had never wrestled one before, and it took all the strength in him, and he slumped and fell as his knees buckled. There, in the hallway, lay the two men staring at one another. The Andy's face, upside down from his own. It felt like a minute, but it was only a matter of seconds before Resh lifted the pistol from the ground, pointed, and fired. He used the adrenaline coursing through him to lift himself off the ground, and trembling, he nearly fell back through the cavity in the wall behind him. He looked back down at the juggernaut and kicked at it, watching sparks spill out of its forehead like a fountain. He had retired one for now. One more to go. The exposed room that his attacker came from 
had a long hallway attached to it. He brushed away some of the remaining plaster from his duster and fixed his collar upright. Down the hallway, ready for death again, Resch found a service door that led down a flight of stairs. Taking them two at a time, fleet of foot in anticipation of his prey, he found himself in the ecstasy of the hunt once more. He took the last steps around the corner and exposed himself to a room set up like a nursery. All the kipple from different rooms in the building had been plucked and salvaged to form a child's room adored with every furnishing one would need for a nursery. Several cribs sat aligning the walls, and one attending female Andy stood over them. What in God's name is this? The attending android spun, laser beam emitting as she turned. Resh dove as he saw her bring her forearm up, bent at the elbow. The Andy never intended to exchange a word, and he knew it. Neither of them had. Resh fired his service pistol once more as he was airborne, then again four more times when he was on the ground. She danced the discordant flurry of sparks and blood alike as the bullets echoed in the small basement room. Then, everything went quiet. He got up reluctantly, understanding the horrors beyond belief of mankind that lay before him in the room. Several Nexus 6 brain computers lay freshly unpacked from the coolers he saw leave the van. In the cribs lay small, child-sized androids, not functional, and awaiting this new and improved unit that made them so close to humans, close enough to require new testing for empathy levels in targets to discern humans from androids. The whole ordeal ruined the experiences he had prior to this. He was still the wolf, but the game had changed. Resh thought for a long time while he dug graves for the Andes. He had never done that before. But after putting five bodies into the ditch and pouring the earth back over them, he wondered if he would ever pass the Voigtkampf test himself, if he were made to take it.